Scripture reading tonight will be taken from Hebrews 13.5. Hebrews 13.5. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. I'm sure considering the thousands of congregations of the Lord's church that exist worldwide, that somewhere there must be a church that is a better singing church than the university church. What I don't know is where they are or who they are. And I thank you for your love of song, for the way that you sing with meaning, and it always is a treat to sing with you. Last week, we began this two-part lesson on the subject of the gift of contentment with a wise old axiom that goes like this, to whom little is not enough, nothing is enough. Now, that's certainly not inspired, but I think it's wise nonetheless. Then we spent some time talking about the last of the Ten Commandments, where Moses gives a clear prohibition. Actually, it's God through Moses, of course, giving a clear prohibition against covetousness which, by the way, has no relevance to us since we're not bound by the Ten Commandments, but that the prohibition against covetousness is included in the New Testament, in Colossians 3, 5, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, and a number of other places. And so it is very much a relevant and vital subject for us today. And I think perhaps more so, this is just my judgment, maybe more so because of the culture in which we live, because of the rampant materialism that pervades our society, than maybe even when Moses first brought this commandment down from Mount Sinai. To just bring us up to speed, and then we'll spend our time with new thoughts and new challenges tonight, covetousness is defined as having an unlawful desire for that which is not rightfully yours. We also, when we gave that definition last Sunday night, pointed out that that certainly does not mean that uh, everything that we might want, even of a material nature, is unlawful. Because we've got to stick with the definition, unlawful desire for that which is not rightfully yours. There are lawful desires. And even regarding things that may be material in nature, things we all understand are necessary for life. So wanting those things, needing those things is not necessarily a bad thing. We need to have some balance in this subject. So it's not owning things that gets us into trouble. It's when things began to own us. When we're on shaky ground, when possession, obsession becomes our overriding and number one priority in life. Admittedly, covetousness is a perplexing problem, but why is it such a big problem? We discussed three reasons last Sunday night, then we'll move on. Number one, it's a deceitful thing. Number two, it's a debasing thing. And then thirdly, we mentioned how that it is, in fact, a very destructive thing. But since it is a big problem, how do we deal with it? I think the first thing we need to do tonight is to kind of back off for a moment and get a proper perspective on things. And I think that once we do that, when we, once we understand the big picture, once, once we understand what really is at stake in this battle for our souls, it will help us to appreciate, first of all, the immensity of the problem, the challenging nature of the problem, and how very much God wants us to be people who have a heart like him. 
We need to understand who we are and what we have. And that really is critical, not only to understanding what this word that we never use in our own vocabularies, this covetousness is all about, but again, why it is such a destructive thing and why it is a danger to our eternal souls. We have to back off and to appreciate, first of all, what we really have. And that's going to be our our first challenge tonight, especially in light of, and I tried to couch last Sunday night's lesson within this uh, fabric, That is, when we're trying to teach our children. So I want us tonight, especially for those of us who are parents, especially for those of you who are parents who still have your kiddos at home with you, and we're trying to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, we need to warn them about the dangers of covetousness. And we don't necessarily have to use that word when we're describing and defining and talking to them about that subject. But we, at some level, I just really believe we need to communicate to our kids that that things isn't what life is all about. And you might want to look and read uh, Luke twelve fifteen and a number of other passages in, in those discussions, but it is central in importance. It is paramount in importance that we communicate to them how critical this subject is. So we need to, to do this, assimilate this material, break it down, put it in our hearts, but then teach it to our children. But it, again, necessitates backing off and getting a proper perspective. In Hebrews 13, 5, the text that Brian read a moment ago is certainly a wonderful place to start. By the way, if you haven't dissected Hebrews 13, 5 in your own Bible study lately, I would encourage you to do that. Every phrase in that great one verse is so chocked with meaning. I've used that passage a number of times in funeral services because of the last phrase where our God has promised, I will never leave you or forsake you. Isn't that a wonderful promise? To know that God will be with us every step of the way in our lives. And I think that has special relevance to those who've just lost loved ones and there's a hole in their heart and they're hurting to know that God has promised that he's, he's never going to leave us and he's never going to forsake us. But here, really, in this one verse is, is the secret of satisfaction. It is the answer to covetousness. Let me read it again. Let your conduct, one version actually says, let your lifestyle be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. There's the real clue. There's the answer. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. That's just really a, a restatement of, of the 10th commandment. The message is you will always be covetous until and unless, unless you learn contentment. So a contented heart and a covetous heart cannot abide in the same person. Why? Because all of us need satisfaction. We're all looking for satisfaction in our lives. And covetousness, in essence, means that we're trying to find satisfaction in all the wrong places. The secret of satisfaction, the Hebrews writer, and this time he is speaking by inspiration, he tells us the secret is to be content with what you have. Now, I think if we went around the room and took a poll and asked everybody if you believe that, we would all answer in the affirmative. And if we were to ask a follow-up question, did you know that that is the case? Did you know about this passage before you came here tonight? Probably the same number of people would say, of course, I knew that's in the Bible. Knowing that it's there, knowing that that is God's word, it is his truth for us today, doesn't necessarily mean that we know how to plug it in, that we know how to apply it, that we know how to reach that state when we're no longer materialistic, we're no longer covetous, we're no longer jealous of people who have things that we really wish that we had, but that we've truly learned contentment in our hearts. Now, that's the secret. That's the whole point 
of this ongoing construction project that we call the Christian life. So the question I think that we need to to at least assimilate somewhere in this discussion is, so what do we really have? If we need to be content with such things as you have, as the inspired writer says, then the first thing I think we need to do is to take inventory. Exactly what do we have? I'm sure you know that the brilliant author Ernest Hemingway died by his own hand, died of suicide. Despite the fact that he was a very wealthy man, he was a man of great celebrity, but he considered life to be, and I'm using his own words now, to be just a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. End quote. What a horrible way to live your life. What a horrible worldview. To Hemingway, life didn't make any sense at all. He said it was not only a joke, it was a bad joke. Think about them, the person who doesn't know God. He gets everything he wants. And yet there's still a hole in his heart. There's a hole in his soul that he has not yet found what will fill that hole. All he can look forward to, in fact, is a hole in the ground where his physical body will one day lie and decay and erode. And in the ultimate, though, like Hemingway, he has to admit there really is no answer. There really is no meaning in, in life. And if it's He who dies with the most toys wins, as the bumper sticker says. Then again, he has to agree that at the end of life, there's got to be more meaning to life than just that. Because even to those who have great material possessions, most, at least, who are honest, will agree that that isn't what brings us ultimate satisfaction. It's a shame, and I mean this with with all the respect that I can muster. It's a shame, is it not, that Ernest Hemingway did not know Jesus Christ. If he had, then life would not be a short journey from meaninglessness to meaninglessness. There would not have been a hole in his soul. It's a shame that he didn't find that satisfaction and joy and meaning in the Lord Jesus Christ. Hemingway just, he, he didn't have the proper perspective in life, and that's the real issue. So what do we have? If you're a child of God, twice born and blood bought, if you're a member of God's spiritual family, his church, Let me tell you, you have great abundance. You are rich by God's standard. First, you have God himself. You have him. He has you. There is a relationship with the God, the sovereign God of the universe who spoke all that we know into existence that cannot be matched by anything, cannot be substituted for anything that will carry you from this life into eternity. You have a relationship with the master of the universe, and you must always appreciate and glorify God for that. The psalmist said, and and said it so much better than I just said it, but Psalm 73, 25 and 26, whom have I in heaven but you? Think about that. Who do I have in heaven but you? And there is none upon earth that I desire besides you. Do you ever get to the point in your life, have you ever thought in your own private ruminations, "I, I wish that I had that spiritual attitude? Where I could truly say there's nothing in heaven or on earth that I desire besides God. And if I have a relationship, a viable, healthy relationship with that God, then I don't want anything else. And I'm going to be perfectly content with what God has blessed me with of a material nature. But the psalmist goes on to say, my flesh and my heart fail, but God is the strength of my heart. And my portion, one version I read, says my allotment forever. That's that's all I need. Just, Just let me know you. Just let me abide in you 
on a day-to-day basis. And that, of course, in part comes from our our studious nature and our, our being into the Word of God. But it also means recognizing the, the power and the eminence of the God that you and I serve. Also, not only do you have God, but you have your family. And if you need to be reminded of this from time to time, then I'm, I'm the one who can do it. But two verses that I think are germane to this discussion, Proverbs 18 verse 22 would be one of them. Solomon says, he who finds a wife finds a good thing. Husbands, do you need to be reminded of that? He who finds a wife finds a good thing. And I think that there are men, husbands in this congregation who would sure amen that. What a blessing our godly Christian wives are to our lives and to the lives of others. Here's another one that also incorporates the family unit. Psalm 127, verse 3, you could probably quote this verse with me. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, and the fruit of the womb is his reward. Do you ever need to be reminded that children are a reward? A reward, folks. It's not a punishment for anything. And yet when you have young babies in the house and you're not getting any sleep, you may have to be reminded this is God's reward. I can remember the time... Years ago, when our four children were small, and I thought, Lord, my quiver is full enough. Thank you. But they are a reward. And if we will look at them that way, it will change our entire lives. If you have children, then I'm just saying to you tonight, I am begging you to count your blessings and to thank God for each and every one of them. There are people today who don't want to have children. If you get the newspaper and you've read Dear Annie's column over the course of the last month, you know that she posed that question in one of her columns about six weeks ago and got all kinds. In fact, she said she got more responses to that one question than any question that she had ever posed to her readers. And that is, if you had to do it over again, would you have children? You can imagine the number and the wide spectrum of answers that she got. But the number one answer of those who said no If I had to do it over again, I would not have the children. In fact, one very acerbically said, at least not the ones I have. (laughs) Wow. Perspective really does mean everything, doesn't it? You see, there are people today who don't want to have children. and, And their reason, I'm not assigning this to everybody, but their reason is we want things. We, we want to spend our time gathering and collecting things. And if we have kids, we can't do that. We want material possessions and pleasures more than we want the family experience. And so that's their right. But I'm just saying that's a thing. And they say children make a rich man poor. No, I'm saying they've got it backwards. I'm telling you tonight, children make a poor man rich. A rich man can't take his riches to heaven with him. But I pray every day that my children will go to heaven with me. So thank God for your children. They are a heritage from the Lord. They are his reward. J. Paul Getty was one of the richest men who ever lived. If you've ever read any of the biographies, or even if you haven't, you know that name in all likelihood. You wouldn't exactly expect him to be envious of anyone. But in one of the, uh, I don't think he ever wrote an autobiography, but one of the biographies that was written about him, someone had interviewed him and asked him if there was any one thing that in life that he really wanted that he didn't have. And his answer ran like this. He said... I am envious of those who know how to make marriage work and to be happy in marriage. 
And if you know J. Paul Getty, you know that he he knew whereof he spoke. His track record was five marriages and five divorces. If you have a happy home, then you're rich. You're blessed. Next, you have friends. The wise man said, a friend loves at all times. That's Proverbs 17, verse 17. Just a few Sundays ago, uh, as I was coming out of my office, after, after class, I go get my stuff, you know, my notes and my Bible, my preaching Bible and so on. And a brother came up to me in, in the foyer on the west side of the building and, and wrapped his arms around me and said, I love you, brother. Let me tell you something. It is wonderful to be loved and to know it. For people to affirm that they love you. And I don't know how many times, how many dozens of times that that has been replicated. Now, I have to be very careful about telling the women of this congregation that I love them. But I don't have any qualms whatsoever about giving a bear hug to one of my brothers here and telling them that I love them. And they'll tell me the same thing. Isn't that wonderful to have friends like that? And to have brothers and sisters in the kingdom of Christ that we can have that kind of relationship with. If you have friends, then you're a wealthy person. You also have, think about this for a moment. You've got God's wisdom. We, we know something they don't know. And, and that's tragic. And we, and we need to get the word out. We want everybody to know what we know about the wisdom of God's word right here available to all of us. If you have discovered the treasure trove of God's wisdom that is put black ink on white paper, for the most of us at least, how rich you are. Listen to Solomon now. This is Proverbs 3, 13 and 14. Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds are better than the profits of silver and her gain better than fine gold. He's talking about the wisdom of God. That is the revelation of God that you and I can open every day at at, at our convenience, at, at whatever time that we decide. Now, we're not like some countries that that there aren't enough Bibles to go around. How tragic that is. Most of us have got Bibles, you know, that we could stack up that would be, as one of my teachers used to say, would be knee-high to a baby giraffe. We've got lots of copies. That's not the problem. The problem is cracking them open and and actually delving into the wisdom of God. Happy is the man who finds wisdom. I, I tell you what, and I don't say this braggadociously at all, I would not trade my knowledge of the Bible for all the money and all the diamonds and all the gold and the silver that this old world has. There are millions of people who are sitting in spiritual darkness right now who would absolutely love to know what you know right now about the mind of God, to have the wisdom of God's word, no wonder... Solomon said, it's better than gold. You also can, you have satisfaction, or at least you can have. Can you say like Paul that you've learned to be content in all kinds of circumstances? Because that was his assessment of his own life in Philippians 4, 11 and 12. And by the way, you might want to consider both sides of that coin that Paul mentioned there. I've learned to be content in, in, in whatever state I am in. Now, he had apparently not visited some of the states that I visited, but nonetheless... Paul said, I've learned to be content with much and also with little. Some people have to wrestle. The greater challenge in their life is what to do with our blessings. It isn't that we have to wake up every day wondering where my next meal is going to come from. You see, sometimes prosperity can be just as big a spiritual challenge for us as can be adversity. And so satisfaction 
is what we need. Can we say, I'm content in every circumstance? Can you say that not only is Jesus necessary, but that he's enough? Can you really say that in your heart of hearts? If you can, if you can say that, folks, I'm just telling you, you can be satisfied. I can honestly say tonight that I am satisfied with Jesus. Now, I am not satisfied with my own Christian life because I want to continue to grow and mature and I want to do that till the day I die. But I can have the peace that passes all understanding because of my relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I heard about a gospel preacher who had gone to visit a man in his community and he stood in front of the man's house getting ready to get back in his car. The man had walked him out to his car. And despite the fact that the man that he, was going to, that he had gone to visit had uh, visited a service of the church where this guy preached, it still was not necessarily a, a, a great thing because he was kind of hard to get to. You know, one of those impervious sort of individuals. He didn't get very far with him. The man's problem was that he was already satisfied. That he was just satisfied with what he had and where he was. Do you know people like that? Very, very difficult to make inroads with the gospel if someone is perfectly satisfied with right where they are. They're lost, but they're satisfied. And this guy said to the preacher, I've got a good income. I don't owe anybody anything. I own my house. I own my car. My wife loves me. So why do I need anything or anyone else? He may not have said it in exactly those words, but that was the message. And the preacher didn't say it out loud. By the way, think about that. That ostensibly at least sounds like a very contented man, doesn't it? But see, that kind of contentment, satisfied with where he was, does not always mean spiritual emancipation. And the preacher said, I, did not, I didn't say it out loud, but I thought about how closely this man's actual verbiage was to what the Laodicean said over in Revelation 3. We have much gain and we have need of nothing. The implication was not even God. We don't need anything. Why? Because, well, we've got all this stuff. We, we are... Well, I guess blessed would be the wrong word in, in their particular context, but we've got all the things that we need to get us uh, through life, and, and that's where the Laodiceans were. They were people who said, we're rich and, and we don't need anything. They thought, yeah, here's the problem, they thought that money and the things that money will buy could plug all the holes in their lives, and they were wrong. So the preacher, before he got back in his car to leave, stopped, and he said, I hear what you say, but let me ask you one more thing. Will you be honest with me? And the man said, sure. And the preacher said, no, no, don't just say it. I, I want you to be perfectly honest in your response. And he, he knew the man well enough to know that he prided himself in his honesty. And sure enough, the man said, well, yes, I, I will. I'll be honest. All right, one more question. Do you have peace in your heart? And the man said, I told you I had all these things. He said, that's not what I'm talking about. Do you have real peace in your heart? And he said, the man's chin began to quiver and his eyes brimmed with tears. And he said, no, I don't have peace in my heart. How did you know? And the man knew him well enough to say, because God's word said there is no peace for the wicked, those who have not yet come to God. These things you cannot have that will not fill your heart. The longing of your heart, you need Jesus. 
And he's right. I'm telling you tonight, folks, what you already know. If you have Jesus, then you have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. Paul said, Philippians 4 and verse 7, if you have that peace, then you're rich, no matter what, how little or how much your bank account may reflect. But if you don't have Jesus, you need him more than anything or anyone in this world. John Muir, that's M-U-I-R if you're taking notes, was a great naturalist in the first part of the 20th century. He is perhaps most renowned for having pretty much single-handedly created the Yellowstone National Park and also for much of the writing, the legal legalese writing of uh, conservation policies in this, our country. So that's who John Muir was. Muir lived a very simple life. It was much like H.D. Thoreau's, you know, Walden's Pond kind of thing. Why have two forks if I can only use one at a time? That was the substance, the sparseness of his, of his lifestyle. And yet he once said that he had more money than E.H. Harriman. Now that requires maybe a little bit of explaining. Harriman was a, a millionaire by early 20th century standards. Today that would be a bold, multi-billionaire because he had earned his money through as a r- railroad tycoon. And yet Muir said in a newspaper interview, he said, I'm richer than E.H. Harriman. And considering the sparseness of his lifestyle, the interviewer said, how can that be? He said, because I have all I want. And Harriman doesn't. That's really what tells whether or not we have a contented heart, doesn't it? Do you have all that you want? Is Jesus Christ enough in your life? So what we need is a proper perspective on this matter of covetousness. Understand who you are. Be free of this materialistic desire for things that others may have. And remember that God, he said, he will never leave you or forsake you. So what more do you need? Very quickly, there also needs to be the practice of satisfaction. Let's make an application of what we learned thus far. We'll be through. Because as we've considered the problem of covetousness and looked at it from a proper perspective, talk for a moment about the practice. How do we put this into practice? And let me give you some ideas that I hope, once again, will help you in teaching your children how to appreciate this truth that the Tenth Commandment has iterated for us that is also, again, incorporated in the New Testament. First, you need to give your heart to the Lord. Now, I want to state the obvious, but that is foundational in nature. We've already alluded to this. Just just give your heart and your life, dedicate your service of your life to the Lord, and that just means you find your satisfaction in Him. Let Him meet the deepest needs of your heart. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. As that old wonderful song says, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full in his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Amen to that. You see, God has engineered us in such a way, we are wired in such a way that the things of this world simply will not satisfy us. Are you listening to me, church? This is stuff that we need to understand and incorporate, not only in our thinking, but in our entire worldview. We were made for God. It is only in him, Paul said to the Athenians, that we live and move and have our very being, Acts 17, 27. And you'll never be able to deal successfully with this matter of covetousness unless you give all that you know of you to all that you know of him. Let go of this world with both hands. Take hold of God with both hands. And you'll be a contented person. Second, 
cultivate gratitude. I know we said a great deal about this last Sunday uh, in light of Thanksgiving, so I'm just going to allude to it. But we must demonstrate a spirit of gratitude and cultivate that spirit in our home, in our family. Be thankful for what you have. Review with your family on a regular basis the ways that God has helped you and prospered you spiritually and materially. And let your children know how rich you are through the Lord Jesus Christ and talk often in their presence and to them about your many blessings and always point to the one who has given you those blessings. Why, why would a teenager who has a closet full of clothes ever say, I don't have anything to wear? Why would kids with the latest gaming system and all the electronics that can be bought at Best Buy ever say, I'm bored? Why would adults with all the things that we have in our lives, all the conveniences and all the technology to enhance our lives, ever say, ever say, I just don't feel good about myself? What's wrong with our world? What's wrong with our society in particular? I think at least a part of the answer is, folks, we have failed to be grateful. We have failed to count our many blessings and name them one by one. We failed to see what God has given us. And please, I'm begging you, don't fall into that trap. Third, learn to love. You see, the Bible teaches, at least implicitly, that if you are a covetous, envious person, that means that you may love things, but you don't really love people. You see, nobody can be covetous and really love others. Because when you covet what others have, you don't really love them. When I go into a fine home and see somebody who has nice things, I make it a practice to privately bow my head and thank God for the way that he has blessed those people. I can remember a, a, a family in a congregation where uh, me and I wor worked in worship before we moved here up in the Memphis area where there was a man and his wife in that congregation who had been blessed in a financial way over the course of their lives. And folks, they had a house. And I mean a house, a capital H house. Their house, if I may put this in proper perspective, was larger than the governor's mansion. She, when Christmas time rolled around, put up 20-something trees and had a room the size of our great room that was dedicated to the storing of her Christmas trees and decorations. That's a house. But rather than looking at something like that and being envious and saying, why can't God give me that? What we need to be doing is thanking God for the fact that he has blessed them in such a wonderful way. You see, that will help to combat the covetousness in our own hearts more than just about anything. Celebrate God's grace and goodness to somebody else. And you're not going to have to worry about envy. You see, the, for most of us, the problem isn't just wanting more. It's wanting more than somebody else. Just love those people who ha may have more than you and thank God that he's blessed them and then let go of the envy. Fourth, know who you are. Know who you are. Understand who you are and your place in that whole framework of God's eternal kingdom. Know who you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. Understand that the Bible says if you're a saint, if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, because it is because you have the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. It's not because of anything wonderful that you've done. It's not because you've lived a godly, righteous life. It's because the righteousness of Jesus has been conferred to you. Understand that you do not get your identity from Madison Avenue. You get your identity from the holy, eternal word of God. 
And celebrate your distinctiveness. Celebrate your difference. Celebrate the fact that God has made us his special people. And celebrate the fact that we have the grand privilege to be able to share that good news with those around us. And then learn to give. Learn to give. We also talked about that a little bit a week ago. And let me just mention this. I I don't know of anything that will kill covetousness more quickly than learning how to give. And that's why I preach on it from time to time from this pulpit. That's why our elders from time to time stand up and ask us to give to very real special needs. And you always come through. Learning to give. Learning to share with others. Learning to help people who are in real legitimate need will overcome the envy and the covetousness in our lives more than just about anything. Preacher was talking to a U.S. congressman one day. And and the congressman told him, he said, Preacher, I want to tell you what God has taught me about giving. And it came not in a sermon. He said, I I love your preaching, but it didn't come in a sermon. Life's greatest lessons don't come when you're sitting listening to me preach. Amen? Okay. But he said, it came at McDonald's one day when I was eating with my teenage son. Took my son to McDonald's. He wanted some French fries. So I bought him a large order of fries, and we sat down to enjoy some father-son time. And as we sat at the table, I got to... I got to smelling those fries. I decided I wanted some of them, so I reached across the table to get some of my son's fries, but my son put his hand on mine and said, hey, those are mine. And he said, I tell you, that just went right through me. I thought, my son has got a bad attitude. But in a moment, I came to realize one of the greatest lessons about stewardship that I'd ever learned in my life. Here's what the congressman said he learned. He said, I thought three things about my son. Number one, he had evidently forgotten where those French fries came from. I'm the one who bought them. Now, if you want to go ahead and make the spiritual application, feel free to get ahead of me. But the second thing he said was, number two, he doesn't understand that I have the power to take those fries away from him if I wanted to. Or I could go buy 20 more large orders of fries. I could bury him in French fries. Or number three, my son did not realize that if I really wanted fries for myself, I've got the money, I could go up there and buy them and sit at another table, and I could eat them all by my lonesome. My son really has an attitude problem. But then he realized, you know, that is exactly the attitude I have sometimes. And I need to remember where my blessings come from. God is the one who has given me everything that I have. And I need to understand that he has the power to take those things away from me or to give me more if he wants to. And I need to understand that God doesn't, God doesn't need what I have in the sense of our need. He has his own. And that's certainly a powerful lesson, folks. I'm here to tell you tonight, if you forget everything else I've said, please go home with this. God doesn't need us. We need him. And nothing will dynamite the covetousness right out of our hearts like learning to give to God and to others. Teach your children to give. Show them how to give. And you will add another brick to the building of a successful home. You see, our real problem is not that we break God's law when we covet and when we are greedy for what we don't have. I I believe with all my heart that that's just a symptom. The real problem, as we mentioned last week, is our hearts. We need to be in a right relationship with Jesus Christ to start with. And then we need to be committed to being transformed into his image more and more every day. And to be able to say honestly to ourselves, I want to be able to think like Jesus. I want to have his attitude about everything. You see, I'm telling you folks tonight that just keeping the rules won't get you to heaven. 
But the blood of Jesus Christ covering your sin will get you to heaven. And then he'll give you the power to live as you ought to live. And if you've never committed your heart and your life to the Lord and you've been washed in the blood of the Lamb, then in a moment we're going to invite you to come. But if you've done that, if you've done that, if you've lived the Christian life for any length of time at all, then you know that the secret of satisfaction is not found in anything that this old world has to offer. It is found only in him, and that's what we offer for you and to you tonight through the power of an old rugged cross while we stand and while we sing.